Turn your Bibles, please, to Exodus chapter 33. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. One of our ushers will get you one from the back. Exodus chapter 33. I'm going to read most of this chapter, so please follow along in the Bible as I read. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the the Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. But, look at these words. I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way. For you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know uh, what, what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Sinai. Now here, there's this little section on the tent of meeting. This is sort of this, this, this little tent where Moses would go and he would meet with God. And then the following section tells us the conversation that Moses was having with God right there in the tent of meeting, verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, See, you, say, you, you, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you. In order to find favor in your sight, consider too that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence does not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your peoples? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for, the man, shall, for, for man shall not see my face and live. And the Lord said, behold, There is a place on which you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Father, we ask as we come into this word that you remind us that this is your inerrant word. This is power. This is truth. That this is powerful enough to split us up, to divide us, 
to pierce our hearts, to convict us, and to bring us into the presence of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. I heard a father once tell a story of a time when he, he, he and his family were going on a trip. They were going get to get on a plane and go to another country. And he asked his young son, are you excited to go? You're going to go on a plane. You're going to go to another country. And the boy, much to his surprise, bursts out in tears. The father's like, what? why is he crying? He said, what's the matter? Why aren't you excited to go? And he said, I don't want to go on a plane and be in a country all by myself. And the father said, wait a second. You think you're going by yourself? No, I'm going with you. And the boy just like, was shocked. So you are? Yes. All alone, this boy, this poor child had thought that he was going to go by himself. But oh, how it changed things when he learned that he would not be without his dad's presence. This, 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 the theme here of this chapter is, is just that. And I want to talk to you on this theme. Without God's presence. Without His presence. The passage can be divided up into a few scenes. Let me just give them to you. Scene 1, we're going to jump back to chapter 32, verses 9-14. through 14. In scene 1, Essentially, here God says, I'm going to start all over. Now remember, if you were here last week, Israel, as soon as they receive the law, delivered from Israel, receive the law, what do they do? As soon as God delivers the law, Israel is down there making idols and making babies with each other. Idolatry, sensuality, rebellion against God. God's wrath right now in this moment is hot. Scene one, God comes to Moses and he's like, all right, Moses, we are starting all over. I'm going to kill all of them and I'm going to start fresh with you. So go ahead, have a baby, because we got to get this whole thing rolling all over again. Moses there pleads with God. Please, don't let your wrath burn hot against these people and destroy them. God then turns and withholds his wrath. That's scene one. Scene two, chapter 32, verses 30 through 35. Moses then turns to the people and he's like, I'm going to go up the mountain and see what I can do. I'm going to try to make atonement for you, Moses says. Moses then goes before the presence of God and he says, please, would you, would you forgive them? God says, okay, I, I, I will not blot them out. Moses then responds by saying, if, if you were to blot them out, then just simply blot me out as well. Destroy me as well, which, which just lifts up and shows the, the servant heart of Moses and how he identifies himself so closely with God's people. Scene 3, chapter 33, verses 1 through 6. We then come to these haunting words. 
By this time, God has said, all right, I'm not going to kill the people. I'm going to let you live. And as a matter of fact, I'm going to let you go to the land. I promised the land to Abraham. God is a God of His promises. God is going to keep His promises. I'm going to let you go into the promised land. But, I won't go with you. You can have it. The land, he, he even quotes it, flowing with milk and honey. You can have all of the land, but I won't go with you. Scene four. Moses is on his face before God, pleading for his presence. That is the climax of the story where we're going to hang out today. It's found right there in verses 15 and 16. This is what Moses says to God. Let me read these two verses. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us? So that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth. Where are you willing to go without the presence of God? What are you willing to get into without the presence of God? What are you willing to run after and to grab and to have? And the only thing you must forfeit is God's presence. Let me ask this question in another way. If you were to wake up tomorrow and God's presence was gone, would you even notice? Would anything in your life be different? Would you go about the conversations that you have in the same way? Would you interact with people in the same way? Would you think of your friendships, your spouse, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, in the same way. Now, the theologians in the room are going to ask this question. Isn't God omnipresent? Meaning, isn't God everywhere? Like, isn't it, well, you, you, you say God's presence is gone. Well, it's impossible. God is present everywhere, right? Yes, He is. God is present everywhere. Even in His wrath, God is present. But what is David getting at in Psalm 51 when he says, cast me not out of your presence? What is David talking about there when he's pleading that he would know and, 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 and be in God's presence? Donald Whitney, he explains it this way. He says, well, yeah, God is everywhere. But what we lose is God's experiential presence. Or, as A.T. Motyer puts it, His close presence. It's possible to live in this earth, to, to live in the omnipresent God and to not experience in any way, shape, or form His presence. We're talking today about His experiential 
presence. Where are you willing to go? The only thing you'd have to forfeit is his experiential presence. What are you willing to click on and look at? The only thing you'd have to forfeit is God's presence. How do we lose God's experiential presence? Some of you are there. Some of you, that's actually why you got up today. Coming to church, hoping to regain this experience of God's presence. How do we lose it? How did David lose it in Psalm 51? How did they lose it here? Well, it's found right there in that word. You're, you're a stiff-necked people, God calls them. God name calls? Yep. <laughs> you are a stiff-necked people. The only one who can righteously name call is the righteous God who rightly knows us. And we are a stiff-necked people. What does that mean? Let me give you a definition for stiff-necked people. Stiff-necked means any person who's overly impressed with their own importance and they're not willing to listen to anyone else. Stiff-necked equals any person who's overly impressed with your own importance and you're not willing to listen to anyone else. You're a stiff-necked people. What does that mean then? How do we lose God's presence? Through pride. Through, through being so puffed up and so concerned with who we are, our accomplishments, the way people think of us. And I know it looks a hundred different ways. False pride is still pride. Being all self-destructive. Oh, don't worry about me. I'll just sit over here. Just be ignored. It's still pride. Being overly concerned or impressed with your own importance or lack thereof. Angry about it. Uh, pride. Unteachability. A Christian brother or sister sits down and says, hey, I, I want to talk to you about a couple things. And you immediately turn off. You get angry. Don't talk to me. Don't confront me. Don't get on to me. And you shake your head and you look down and you slam a door. Unteachable. Unable to come into the Word of God and learn from it. Unrepentant sin. You know the idols that we build? Building an idol and clinging onto it. And saying, you know what, I've spent a lot of time on this golden calf, and I am not willing to let it go. Check this out. This is what's happening here in this passage. Israel built a golden calf. Why? Do you remember? To have gods that would what? Come on. Go before 
us. There we go. All right. We want an idol to be the presence of God for us. This is what we want to go before us. This is what we want to be our banner as we move forward. This is what we hope and this is what we cling to. And the irony is God is saying, look, you built an idol to go before you, to be the presence of God among you. You can have it. I'm not going. God is not willing to double date your idol. God is not willing to hop in bed when you've got an idol in there. He's not just going to happily go along with you. Okay, let's go wherever we're going. Don't worry about that guy. Okay. No, God is a jealous God. And He wants your soul undivided attention. So therefore, His presence will not go with you. Now how bad is it to lose God's presence? This is what I want to highlight here. As, as Moses comes before and, and pleads with God that God's presence might go with His people. We see a couple things that Moses himself highlights. These are God-glorifying reasons as to why God's presence must go with His people. If God's presence does not go with us, these are the horrifying realities. Let me just point them out to you. Without God's presence, first, our blessings are nothing. Our blessings are nothing. Emmanuel Jal was a Sudanese war child in the 1980s. And in his book, War Child, he talks about walking with the troops through the desert and one of his young friends falls underneath a shade tree. Jal sits down next to his dying friend. And the troops continue on and Emmanuel says, get up, let's go. We, we can't lose them. We don't want to lose our people. Like this is... And the friend won't budge. The friend won't go forward. So then Emmanuel says, look, if, if you're not going to go, then I'm not going to go either. And he leans up against the tree and he sits with his friend who's weak and dying. Now this is, a, this is sort of like what Moses is saying to God here. If you're not going to go, I'm not going to go either. The difference is God is not the weak, dying boy. But God is the righteous, holy God who cannot go with idolatrous, stiff-necked people. And this is actually, believe it or not, grace. We see this in verse 3 right there. God says, if I go with you, I'll kill you. That sounds like grace. I'll let you live. And that's why I've got to stay back here at Mount Sinai. So get along with yourself. Moses says, look, if you don't go, let me read it to you. Verse 15, let me read it again. Moses says to God, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. If you won't go, don't let us leave. We're not leaving. We're staying right here in the wilderness at the bottom of Mount Sinai. I want to zoom in on the reality of what's happening here. The promised land. The land flowing with milk 
and honey. The luscious land. The green pastures by the sea. Who would not want to go to the promised land from the wilderness? Who would choose to stay at the bottom of Mount Sinai in the middle of the wilderness instead of moving on and taking the promised land? I'll tell you who. Moses. If God's presence will not go, His blessings are nothing. The promised land is nothing. The stuff that He gives us is nothing without His presence. I think it was Francis Chan who asked this question in one of his books that he wrote. He said, um, if you were to get to heaven and, you know, streets of gold, mansion, whatever's there. But you, Jesus is not there. God's presence is not there. Would it still be heaven for you? See, so often we think of, let's say, heaven, and we don't even consider the reality that, that worshiping Jesus is not a huge part of what we think of heaven to be. It's more about us, more about my blessings. And isn't that the way we treat God today? We want God's stuff, but we don't want God's presence. Are you more concerned with receiving God's blessings than you are about being in His presence? Are you more concerned about going on? You promised the promised land. I'm going to take it and going on and taking whatever it is that you want. Leaving God behind with or without you, God, I'm getting it. Are you more concerned about what you can see than about the presence of Jehovah? Are you more concerned about God's presence, P-R-E? S-E-N-C-E than God's presence, P-R-E-S-E-N-T-S. What if God were to say to you, I'll give you that six-digit job. I just won't go with you. Would you take it? What if God said, look, I'll give you that spouse. I just won't go with you into that marriage. Would you go? Kids in the room, I'll let you be whatever you want to be when you grow up. But I just won't go with you. Where would we go? Where would we be willing to go? What would we be willing to take if the only thing we had to forfeit was God's presence? Is there anything that would be worth that? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. You know, happiness in your marriage is so much more contingent on God being present in your marriage than anything you can find in any tactic or in any strategy in any marriage book. Health, holiness, and unity in this church Growth in this church is so much more contingent upon God's presence being with us than anything any church growth guru could tell us. Do we crave God's presence? Do we plead for God's 
presence. Second thing. First, our blessings are nothing. Second, our good deeds are nothing without God's presence. I, when I read this, I, I imagine a politician, and maybe it's because it's political season. A victorious politician saying, he walks out on the stage, the streamers, the balloons, he just won the big election, and he's up there, and he's got his kids with him, but she's not there. Or she walks up on the stage, victorious politician, and her husband is not there. What does that say? The tabloids would love it. The tabloids would go crazy. Where is the president's wife? They must have just had an argument, and she said, I'm not walking on the stage with you tonight. Horrifying. Moses is saying, look, there's no way we're walking onto the stage of the world without your presence. Just as the president might say, how would anybody know that we have a good marriage if you don't come on stage with me? Moses is saying, how will anybody know that you are pleased with us if you don't walk onto the world stage with us? We need your presence. Now evidently, we see this in chapter 32, verse 12, the Egyptians have been gossiping about Israel. There's been some news in the Egyptian tabloids. Verse 12 of 32. Why should the Egyptians say? This is what the Egyptians have been saying about us. With evil intent did he bring them out to kill them on the mountains, to consume them from the face of the earth. You can just imagine that on the Egyptian tablo tabloids of the day. This is why God took them out of here, because God, this, their God is going to kill them. Moses is saying, why should the mockers be right? How does, how does it bring glory to you, God, if the Egyptians are right? How will anybody know that we are your people? How will anybody know that you are pleased with us if you don't go with us? What is Israel's power? It's the fact that they have this presence of God that's with them, a God that is pleased with them. What is our power today? Is it not the same? Union with Christ, fellowship with Christ, experiencing the presence of Christ in His body. What is our power? It's the Gospel of Jesus Christ. That Jesus lived a life for us that we should have lived. That Jesus died on the cross for our sins. All who trust in Him are forgiven of their sins and are given the righteousness of Jesus Christ and are given the hope, the promise that one day they will be to raised with Christ forever. To live with Christ forever. Freed from sin. Forever. That is the power. That's our only power. That is the message that we have, guys, is it. Everything else we do commends the power, or commends the gospel. But the power is in the gospel. It's in the message. It's in, it's in, it's in the telling that God is with us, that God is pleased with us because of Christ. We don't, we, 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 we can't, we can't go up against anybody without this power. We've got nothing. We've got nothing. 
We can't compete with the drug dealers. We don't have the money that, money that they have. When it comes to, to jobs, we can't compete with the corporations. When it comes to entertainment, our, our, our guys, our, our power is not in entertainment. We can't compete with the swag of Hollywood. Our power is in the gospel. It is only in the gospel. And anything that we do from painting a fence to entertainment, whatever it is, only has power if it's communicating the gospel. Why is that? The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. That's what we have. How is the gospel commended among us? It's when we gather together. Jesus said it this way. When the world sees the way that you love, that's how the world will know that this gospel is true. Now, friends, how can we love in this way if God's presence is not with us? How can we just on our own try to love in some crazy supernatural way? It's impossible. If God's presence is not with us. How will the world know that God is pleased with us if God's presence is not with us? If we are just ongoing in our sin, in our pride, in our arrogance, in our unteachability, how will the world ever know that God's with us and pleased with us? They won't. Thirdly, our reputation is nothing without God's presence. You know how some houses have a distinct smell? Have you ever wondered what your house smells like? I always wondered that about mine, so you guys could tell me later. Is it good? I don't know. It probably smells like an old house. Or when I was growing up, uh, went over to one of my good friend's house every day between school and basketball practice. And I can still smell his house in my mind to this day. It just had a distinct smell. It wasn't a bad smell. It's kind of a sweet smell. Lavender, maybe. It was a soft smell. This word distinct right here in verse 16, it, it actually references that kind of smell. There's something distinct about my friend's house growing up. It, it, it was unique. It smelled a certain way. And uh, all throughout the story of the Bible, God is making a people that smell a certain way, that are distinct. From Adam to Noah, to Abraham, to Joseph. God has been pulling out, calling out a people, giving them the law, creating a people that, that just, they smell a certain way. There's a sweetness about them. It's distinct. It's different. The word distinct means like something is just sub substantially different than everything else. Going into the New Testament, we see this from Jesus to his disciples, to the women, to the apostles, to the early churches. There is something distinct that's happening. This, this people, they, they smell a certain way. Now, one thing that Moses gets that I want to pick up on is this. In and of ourselves, 
There is nothing that is distinct. This is, this is one of the offenses of Christianity. And if you're not a Christian, this will come across as offensive. But it's true. In and of ourselves, we are not impressive. We're not impressive. There's nothing about us in and of ourselves that smells great. But with God's presence, we become distinct, set apart, different. We smell good. The only distinguishing factor that Israel has as they go forward through the wilderness and into the promised land has nothing to do with who they are intrinsically as a people. It only has to do with what they have when God's presence is added to them. And they become a distinct, distinguished people. If they go on, there will be no distinguishing. And if we try to go on in ministry, in life, six, seven days a week, there will be nothing distinct about us without the experiential presence of God. What is it that makes your marriage distinct? It's the presence of God. What is it that will make your singleness smell different than the world? It's the presence of God. What is it that will make you as an employee distinct? It's the presence of God. Without the presence of God, we are nothing. With the presence of God, we are everything. Not because of us intrinsically, but because of who is with us. Without God's presence, you can't do anything in this world. Like real, I, mean, I get common grace. I know that we can build wells and do good things. But I'm talking about eternal change. But with God's presence, every single one of us can change the world. Not because of who we are, but because of who goes with us. Without God's presence, worship is, is merely emotional stimulation. But with God's presence, worship is it brings us to the face of Christ and we meet with God. Without God's presence, work is mere, merely toilsome, often just futile. With God's presence, work becomes active participation and contribution to God's creation. Without God's presence, adversity sucks. Period. But with God's presence, adversity produces character. Without God's presence, risk is truly scary. But with God's presence, whom can I fear? Without God's presence, death, it's hopelessness. 
but with God's presence. Death, death is, 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 is God finally freeing us from the pains and the corruption of this world, bringing us to his care, helping us through that moment of death, and one day reuniting us with our bodies. Without God's presence, we only have fear. With God's presence, there is no fear in life and no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. So how might we plead for God's presence? How might we find God's experiential presence today, tomorrow, the rest of this week, the rest of your life? Second Chronicles chapter 7, verses 14. Verse 14 says this, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and turn from their sin, I will hear them, I will forgive them, and I will heal their land. God's face is turning toward you. Once you turn your face toward God's, God's face embraces you. Verse 16 goes on. For now, I have chosen to consecrate this house My name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. What does it mean to, to experience God's presence? What does it mean to regain the presence of God? It means, friends, humble yourself. Get on your face before God. What is Moses doing here? He's getting on his face and he's pleading before God. Is Moses arguing with God? Is he being mean? Is he being arrogant? No. He's getting before God and he's giving God-glorifying reasons as to why God should answer this request. And notice he's not tagging it with, but if that's not what you want to do, may your will be done. I mean, we get it. We're praying in the will of God. We want God's will to be done. But when we pray, when we humble ourselves and we seek His face and we pray, we should pray like this. God, if you don't go, I won't go. God, if you don't go with us, how will anybody know that you're pleased with me? Because there's nothing about me that would tell them that. God, if you don't go with me, I will not be distinct. I will not be set apart to glorify you. God, this is all about you. Please, I beg you, I plead with you, go with me. Go with me. And friends, look at God's response to Moses. This very thing that you've spoken, I will do, for you found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses was doing what God wanted him to do all along, to make intercession on behalf of the people. And God said about Christ, this is my son, in whom I'm well pleased. And Christ made intercession for us on the cross, on our behalf, and he pleads with God today. The Father wants Christ to make intercession. Christ does exactly what the Father wants him to do. And Christ said to us, I will never leave you. And I will never forsake you. We are in the experiential presence of God because of Christ. With his presence, we can go nowhere. 
but with God's presence. Watch out! Here we come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the fact that we have your experiential presence, that we have the close presence of you, not merely just a theoretical, uh, uh, theological idea, but God, you are near to us. You have drawn near this morning through the preaching of your word. Continue to draw near. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.